In Genesis, the 19th chapter, in the 17th verse, we hear the pleading words of the angel to Lot and his family as they were led out of the doomed city of Sodom, where the Bible says, Escape for thy life, look not behind thee, neither stay thou in all the plain. Escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed. Today, lying somewhere beneath the silent waters of the Dead Sea, are the charred remains of that ancient evil city. Thousands of unmarked graves dot the ocean floor. Graves of men, women, and children who were swallowed up by the evil of Sodom and met the wrath of God face to face. You know, this timely narrative of Lot and the residents of Sodom is one of the more frightening and certainly one of the more sobering accounts in all the annals of biblical history. If we could go back in time, we would probably be surprised to find a city that, relatively speaking, would be very similar to the large urban centers of our day. It was doubtlessly a bustling place with all of the frills and excitement that any city of that time could afford. I would imagine that you would find people that worked from day to day. You would find children that would be at play, neighbors who visited themselves, business and commerce went on as usual. It was settled in a rich and fertile plain and was prosperous in the center of activity that it was. Lot found it suitable and found it a suitable place to settle and raise his family. You know, very sadly, as we look at that account and we look at those facts in his life, we find that he ignored the wickedness that Sodom was known for and he made a foolish and unfortunate choice and subjected his wife and innocent children to the filth of that environment. You know, of course, Sodom and Gomorrah's reputation, I am certain, preceded them as being saturated with homosexuality and every other manner of sin and vice. We can assume that Lot was aware of this fact, but we find that the rich, well-watered land offered this shrewd businessman more than he could refuse. Surely he felt that absolutely I could insulate my family from the filth and the sin and all of the things that are around us. Surely I can do that. Surely I can shield my family from the outward temptations of all of the filth and the sin that's in that city. I would imagine, though, that Lot would say that he lived to regret that decision even before he left. But you know, in the book of Genesis, we find that this man, Lot, is introduced to us as the nephew of Abraham. The Bible says in the 12th chapter of the book of Genesis, and also in the 13th chapter, that the nephew of Abraham, being Lot, sojourned with him. We find also, like his uncle, that Lot became very wealthy. Notice what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 13 and beginning in verse number 2 where the Bible says, And Abram was rich in cattle, in silver, and in gold. And he went on his journeys from the south, even to Bethel, unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Hai, unto the place of the altar which he had made there. It was there that Abram called on the name of the Lord. And Lot also, which went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. Then down in about verse number 6, we find that the Bible tells us that because of their combined wealth, they could not dwell at peace together any longer. 
And the Bible says that there was a strife or there was division between the herdmen of Lot and the herdmen of Abraham. But then we find that Abraham, with all of his wisdom, having his priorities in check and his priorities where they ought to be, he comes to the realization that there should be absolutely no division and no strife between himself and Lot, and certainly there should be no division and no strife between their herdmen. And so Abraham said this. He said, you choose first. You know, I've tried to, in my mind's eye, picture how this must have been. Here it was that Lot is there with Abraham, and Abraham says to him, Look out here, there's no reason why there should be strife among us. We need to put a stop to all of this nonsense. We don't need that at all. It is not necessary. And then Abraham said, Look, isn't all the land before thee? And he said this, There's room for both of us. And he tells them, all you have to do now is go ahead and choose, and you can choose first. If you choose to go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you choose to go to the right, then I'll go to the left. And the Bible says about that time that Lot lifted up his eyes, and I've tried to picture in my mind's eye when he looked at the well-watered plain of Jordan, what exactly he saw. Oh, I would just imagine that the wheels started turning in his mind as he started to think about how prosperous, perhaps, he might be in that place. This was a businessman that had some wealth. This was a businessman that I am certain wanted to further himself along the lines of finance and business. And quite perhaps, not only that, Maybe the selling feature that put it over the top was how beautiful the plain was, how beautiful the land was indeed. And so the Bible says that he did this, that Abraham dwelled in the land of Canaan and Lot journeyed east, and when he did, he dwelled in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent toward Sodom. But notice in Genesis chapter 13 and verse 13, where the Bible says, but the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. Oh, what a horribly wicked city that was. And you know, tonight you and I understand, and we're not naive to the fact that there's a certain sin of today that we know of that came from that wicked, wicked place. But you know, Lot could say, couldn't he? Couldn't Lot say, well, it's okay. It's okay because, after all, I am not like that. Couldn't he say, it's all right if I go and dwell with them and even do business with them, associate with them, be their neighbor, and on and on and on, even prosper from them? Because, after all, I have no intention whatsoever of partaking of their evil sin. Couldn't he say that? Couldn't he say that? And that would have been okay. I want you to notice the words of 2 Peter chapter 2 and beginning in verse number 7. Where the Bible says, And delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them, notice, in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. 
oh, the influence that it must have been on Lot and ultimately on his family as well. Hear the words of the great apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 33, where Paul said, Be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good manners. Also in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 17, the apostle Paul said, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Also, in verse number 18, it says, And as a result, when you do that, I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. And finally, one more verse of Scripture along that line. By the same author, the Apostle Paul, by and through divine inspiration in Ephesians chapter 5, and verse number 11, said this, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Well, we very sadly know the end of the story. We know that, that, that Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom when two angels came in the form of men. And we understand that Lot insisted that these men come back and stay with him. And you remember that these angels said, no, that's all right. We'll stay here. We'll stay and remain in the street all night. But the Bible says that Lot pressed upon them the importance of coming with him. And he was persistent. And because he was so persistent, they did so. And they made unleavened bread. And the Bible says that they ate. And they're now inside the home of Lot. And I'm going to tell you something. Before they laid their heads down that night... Something most disgusting in all the world that we can possibly fathom was about to happen. The Bible says, and this will show the wickedness of this evil city, the Bible says that these angels were spotted by the men of Sodom. And the men of Sodom, by the way, both young and old. Let that be a lesson. The younger will follow their example. I'm going to tell you something, these younger people, these younger men that are described here in this story and in this account, as they compassed around the house of Lot, these younger people didn't wake up one day and all of a sudden that's the way that they were. They were not born that way, they were not born into sin, they were not born with a depraved soul with something wrong with them, they were not born trapped in a body and didn't know what they were, male or female, they were what they were because of their outward evil influences that were in their life. I'm going to tell you something, that's why people sin today. They're tempted, they yield to the temptation and then sin is brought in their life. I'm going to tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. You surround people with wickedness and sin and all of that. And pretty soon it's going to wear on them. It's going to change them. Their values will change. The things that they do in their life will change. Their priorities will change. And every single decision they make after that point will change. Well, we know the story. They called in to Lot and they said, Lot, come out here and send those two men, those new men that we've never seen. You send those two men and you send them outside that we might know them. I hope we all understand that they weren't requesting that these men come out so they can know them to be pen pals in the future. 
I hope we all have an understanding just exactly of what was meant when they said that we might know them. You know, Lot was horrified by that and standing there in front of his door. He said, don't do that. Don't do that horribly wicked thing. Don't do that terribly sinful thing, he said. And then, then he says the unthinkable. I still haven't sorted this out. Maybe you have. But he says, I have two daughters that have never known a man. You take them instead, and you do to them whatever is pleasing in thine eye to do. Oh, I can't fathom such a thing. But you know what it did to those men at Sodom, those young men and those old men of Sodom? It infuriated them. And the Bible says they pressed against Lot, and they said, listen, you are a part-time dweller here in our land, and you are going to stand in judgment over us? Then he said, they said to him, whatever we were going to do to those two men, we're going to do worse to you. And the Bible says that they pressed upon Lot so great that he was about to push the door down. And from the inside, a hand from one of those angels reached out and grabbed him and pulled him inside and struck all of those men that were outside that had compassed his house with blindness so that they would not be able to find the door. Well, then Lot's going to find out some things. When the morning came, he finds out that it's time to destroy this place. The angel said to Lot, get your family together and get out of this place, for the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And when the morning came, the angels hastened Lot and said, Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters which are here, or else they will be consumed with this city. And the scripture says, They lingered, and the men laid hold on Lot's hand, and laid hold upon his wife's hand, and laid hold upon the hand of his daughters. And the Bible says, took them outside the city and said, basically in our language, run for your life. That's what you have to do with sin. You got to run for your life. You can't even let your foot stay in the path of it. Book of Proverbs teaches us that. Because it'll get us. It surely will. You know, the pressure was so great on Lot's wife for whatever reason, the screams, the horror behind, the life that she enjoyed from times past, whatever. A loved one, but she turned back. She looked back, and the Bible says she was turned into a pillar of salt, and we know that very story. We know the ending. Oh, the choice of Lot. It all began with his choosing the well-watered plains of the Jordan. When it ended up, we find that he, as he looked back over the landscape of his life, would find that he found, suffered oppression in that place. He suffered torment by the citizens of Sodom. He lost all of his wealth. He suffered the death of his wife and even the shame of incest with his daughters, all because he made the wrong choice. Study with me now for the remaining time some life-changing decisions that we must make in our life. You know, I've been kind of referring to this. I haven't preached on this yet, so it's not a rerun. But I've been referring to how there are major decisions in our life and there are little day-by-day -day decisions in our life and how even the little decisions in our life are significant. They mold who we are. They shape who we are. That is a fact. 
Well, tonight, I want to talk about some big decisions. I want to talk about some very large decisions in our life that change everything. First of all, understand this, that God's plan is, always has been, and always will be the perfect plan for you. The problem isn't that there's a mistake in the plan. The problem is there's a mistake and a flaw in man. If we would just follow the pattern and follow what God has authorized, ordained, and established in his word, we won't have problems in this life, and we'll find ourselves one day before our maker hearing those wonderful words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Let me just say tonight that the greatest cho uh, choice and the greatest thing that we will do the greatest choice, the most important decision, is our decision to follow Jesus. I know that the world has all manner of ideas on how you follow Jesus. Many would say that you follow Jesus and have relationships with him in any way, that, any way shape, or form. Many folks say that you can have a relationship all by yourself, that it's separate and apart from someone else's relationship with the same Lord. But the Bible doesn't teach such things. There is a pattern for man to follow. First of all, the Bible says that a man must be born again. The reason for that is a man that is in sin, and by the way, anyone that has sinned has become the servant of sin and needs to do something with those sins in his life. The only thing you can do is to contact the precious blood of Jesus who died on the cross for the sins of the world so that that blood can cleanse our sins. There's no other way that we can do that. The Bible says that we need to be born again. I also understand that people often misunderstand and misinterpret what is meant by Jesus. When he had that discussion with Nicodemus so long ago, when he said that a man must be born again. Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? You remember that Jesus said, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Jesus would also say that a man must be born of water and the spirit in order to be born again. More on that in just a moment. First of all, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, the Apostle Paul said, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I have preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I have delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. Notice. He said how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. How he was buried and how on the third day he rose again according to the scriptures. Notice what he says here. He says that Jesus Christ did this. That on Calvary's cross at Mount Calvary on Golgotha's brow a long, long time ago, he hung on the cross and he died. After he died, after he was on that cross for six hours, the Bible says he was taken down from that cross with not a bone in his body being broken. He was buried in the tomb and stayed there for three days. But then we rejoice in the fact and we're so excited about the fact that Jesus then rose from the dead on the third day. Notice this. Paul said, 
keep in memory what I have preached unto you. He's talking to Christians. What did he preach unto them? He preached unto them this. He said to keep that in memory whatsoever I have preached unto you. Romans chapter 6 and verse 17. The apostle Paul said, but God be thanked that you were the servant of sin. But he says, God be thanked because you no longer are the servant of sin. Why is that? He said, you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine. The form of doctrine was what he said to those at Corinth. You've obeyed it, you did it, you followed it, and you'll be saved if you keep in memory what I have preached unto you. And in Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse number 3, the Bible says, Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we've been planted together in the likeness of his death, we should also be in the likeness of his resurrection. That happens when one is baptized for the remission of his sins. When one will do that, he obeys from the heart this form of doctrine. He contacts the blood of Jesus and his sins are washed away. There is no greater decision that a person makes in their life than the decision to follow Jesus in the form or fashion that the Bible pictures that one must do. And the Bible clearly pictures that a person must be baptized for the remission of their sins to walk in newness of life in order to be saved. You know, I know that uh, we say this a lot. And you know, I'm a young man, I realize that, but I'm going to keep saying it until the day I die. And I would that all brethren would never get wearied by me saying or anyone saying this. But once you obey the gospel, once you are a Christian, every single thing in your life just now has begun as a new creature. And listen, being in the body of Christ is being in his church. The church needs to be the most important thing in our life. Everything that we do hinges upon our response to the gospel. Everything uh, hinges upon our obedience to Christ. Everything changes. If we will truly put him first in our life and his church first in our life, we will not have priority problems tossed to and fro, making decisions as we go along and hoping we make the right ones. Put him first, most important thing in your life. Number two, you know, there's something else that's very important. I think you'll all agree, and that is choosing your friends. Having a good friend is a wonderful blessing. Did you know that the Bible actually talks of that? In Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 17, the Bible says, A friend loveth at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. I want you to know something tonight. I have some wonderful friends, not just people that I would say that I'm close to because we are brethren, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. I'll take it a step further. I'm going to tell you something. There are people in this room that are dear friends of mine. 
I kind of think I know what the book of Proverbs was talking about. When I look out across this audience and I see people that have sat and cried with me. When I see people that are in this audience that have rejoiced with me. That have encouraged me. That have helped me. Oh, a wonderful friend is priceless. Friends are important. And you know what? Another thing about that. Friends are some of the greatest influences in our life. That's a fact. So we better choose them wisely. We better make a good choice when it comes to our friends. You know, in, uh, in other words, when Proverbs 17 and 17 says, A friend loveth at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. In other words, he's saying a pretender may show love occasionally, but the love of a true friend is constant. You know, I was studying with a person the other day. We were talking about friends. We were talking about influences in the world. And it was said to me by this person, but the people that are, I know it's, I shouldn't be doing that kind of stuff out there, but the people out there are my dear friends. I can't just drop them off by the wayside. We're too close, like we're blood brothers or something. But you know, I guarantee you this. If there was once a time when you had something in common that was sinful, okay, and you removed that sinful act away from your relationship, you stop doing that sinful act, you just watch and see how fast you get dropped like a bad habit. When you come to realize you have nothing in common with that, and the only thing you had in common was the sin, that's the pretender that the book of Proverbs is talking about. Oh, they act like they're with you. They act like you can trust in them. They act like you can count on them. But when the chips are down, where will they be? The wrong friend is a curse for righteousness. In Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 26, the Bible says the righteous is more excellent than his neighbor but the way of the wicked seduceth them. And you remember that we've already quoted from 1 Corinthians 15 and 33 where the Apostle Paul said, Be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good manners. You know, I think it's important that we just understand that we need not to follow the wrong craft. But understand this too. We can't go isolate ourselves and hide inside. Because if we hide inside, how are we going to save that which is lost? We cannot. You know the difference, though. We all do, surely. We know that there's a big difference between trying to, trying to lead somebody to Christ. There was a huge difference between the publicans and the sinners that ate with Jesus and somebody partaking in their evil deeds. Oh, we need to reach out to the lost. Let me just say this, too. We talk about this, I might preach on this at a later time in this meeting, I don't know. But I'll just say this very briefly. That I understand that the word of God is that seed that needs to be planted in a good and honest heart. If the seed is not planted in a good and honest heart, God will not give the increase, we understand that. But just remember this, it is mine and your responsibility as Christians to take that word and soften those hearts. That's what we need to do. Don't sweep them under the rug like they're insignificant. Soften their heart. If you get rejected, go back again and again and again 
and try to soften their heart. Thirdly, tonight and very hurriedly, choosing a mate in this life, I'll tell you something, aside from obeying the gospel, I don't know what a greater, bigger, earth-shattering, life-changing decision there is than choosing a mate. You know, sometimes folks look at things differently when they get their emotions involved. But let me just say this again. I know there are marriages and families being destroyed as I speak right now all over the world. I know that. But that's not because it's God's fault. God has established and ordained the marriage relationship that if a man and a woman will follow that pattern and that plan, they are destined for success in their home. But if they deviate from that, they are destined for failure. Choose a mate, young ladies in this audience. Choose a man that is willing to rise up and be the man that he should be, to be the leader of his family, to do what the Bible says, that Paul said, husbands, love your wives, how so? As Christ also loved the church. That tells me that if I can understand how Jesus Christ loved the church, then I can understand how it's supposed to be that I'm supposed to love my wife. First of all, Jesus loved the church to the extent that he gave himself for it. The church is the bride of Christ. How does he lead? Performance, example, sacrifice. Oh, those are big, strong words. Those are some pretty difficult things at times, but you know it doesn't change the pattern. Young men, you choose a woman that is willing to get in her role. Very politically incorrect thing, you that are here at this congregation, that are members here at Plans, have heard me say this before, I'll say it again. I know it's politically incorrect, but men and women are not equal. We are different because God has given us different roles. But I'm going to tell you something. Any man, though, that thinks that because men and women are not equal and the man's been given the authoritative role in the home, that he's to be a tyrant and a bully over his wife, I'm going to tell you something, ladies and gentlemen, that's not a big man at all, and that's a man that goes diametrically opposed to the teachings of the Apostle Paul with reference to the marriage relationship. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. Be a wife in subjection to that type of authority and that type of headship. Can you think of anyone that would be, any woman that would be sad or any woman that would not want to be a part of a relationship like that? Where the husband is thinking of nothing but the woman. And by the way, we have to go back to Jesus because that's what Paul said. Nothing Jesus did was for himself. Everything he did was for his bride. Pretty big shoes to fill. But the plan is perfect. I'd like to say so many more things tonight. One more thing, though, because time has now failed me, and then I'll quit. I want to talk to you now about the awesome responsibility that men and women have with their children. You know, the day that people decide, and the husband and the wife decide, they want to bring children into this world. Oh, what an important day, what an important decision. Very sadly, though, there are children tonight. As I stand before you throughout this whole world that are going unloved, 
There are children that are living their lives not knowing what it's like to have a Christian father and a Christian mother. Very sadly, there are children, even amongst God's people, that have weak parents that won't stand for that which is right and won't guide them and direct them in the way that they should go. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight I want you to understand that the decisions that we make as parents don't just affect ourselves. They affect them. They affect their soul. I know Ezekiel 18 says, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. I completely and thoroughly understand that. But I will say this too. It is the responsibility of the parent to bring the children up in the way that they should go. The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 6 and 4, Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. There is no greater responsibility that we have in our life than trying to get our children to heaven. Let me just say this, if you'll pardon the personal aside, I don't like doing this very much, but I will this time. My two children are everything to me. I know you all know that. I got the best kids in the world, just ask me. And I'm very proud of them. I'm very proud when they have an accomplishment in this life. I really am, as any parent would. But I'll tell you this, it doesn't make any difference what they accomplish in this life. It doesn't matter if they become the greatest the world has ever seen in their field. Their peers can bow the knee before them and they can exalt them above everyone. If they miss heaven, they've lost it all. You know, a preacher one time said, if I lose my children to the devil, it won't be before the fight. That's a fact. But just what if my influence is driving them away? Because if it's not important to me, it won't be to them. How will they remember you? How will your children remember you? Young fathers, myself too, how will they remember us when we're gone? How will they remember us when they grow up and they face the battles and challenges in their life? Will they remember us like this father was remembered one time? A boy once wrote these words about his dad. He said, his shoulders are a little bent, his youthful force a trifle spent, but he's the finest man I know, with heart of gold and hair of snow. He's seldom cross and never mean, he's always been so good and clean. I only hope I'll always be as kind to him as he's to me. Sometimes he's tired and seems forlorn. His happy face is lined and worn. Yet he can smile when things are bad. That's why I love my gray-haired dad. He doesn't ask the world for much, just comfort, friendliness, and such. From the things I've heard him say, I know it's up to me to pay for all the deeds he's done for me since I sat rocking on his knee. Oh, not in dollars, dimes, or cents, because that's not a father's recompense. Nor does he worship wealth or fame, 
He'd have me honor Jesus' name. Is that how they'll remember us? Or will they remember us like a story was once told about a young boy, a young man actually, that stood in the presence of a judge that was going to sentence him to a life of prison for a life of crime. This judge was absolutely disgusted as he sat up there on his judgment seat and looked down at this young man. He was disgusted because he had known this young man since he was a little tiny boy. He knew him because his dad was a great lawyer. His dad was also a great author. And he said this, he said, boy, look at your life. I want you to look at your life right now. And you tell me, why is it that you're standing before me to be sentenced to prison for a life of crime that you have done when you've had a great man like that as your father? Well, this judge wanted to prick the conscience and the heart of this young man just one more time before he was sent to the prison. He said, I want you to think back on your life with your dad right now. I want you to think about something. I want you to think of something that you remember about that great man that he was. Well, this young man kind of paused for a moment as he looked down at the ground. He slowly lifted his eyes up as he gazed back into the eyes of this judge. He said, Your Honor, this is what I remember. I remember when I came to him and said, Daddy, can I have some advice? I remember he said, run along, boy. I'm busy. He said, sir, I remember when I was little. I came to my dad and I said, Daddy, I need a companion. Would you play with me? And I remember he looked up briefly from the book he was writing and said, Run along, boy. Run along. I have a book to finish. He said, Your Honor, you see, what you look at as a great man, what you remember as a great litigator, great author, and great man, I see a lost friend. This man was on this judgment seat there that day. This judge was finally moved with compassion. And he lowered his head and his eyes looked down and he said, oh, I understand. He finished the book but lost the boy. How will they remember us one day? We only get one shot with those little guys. Just once. They want our attention. They want our love. They want our friendship. They want our companionship. They want our advice. They want guidance, though sometimes the little guys don't act like it. They do want guidance. It's up to us as parents to guide them in the way that they should go. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. 
and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.